Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you this morning asking for your insight into your word. May we handle these difficult passages in an way that glorifies you so that our understanding is expanded and we have deeper conceptions of what you've done on our behalf. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I don't know how many of you are golf fans, but, okay, a couple. But uh, on Friday, there's a golfer named Ricky Fowler. And uh, Ricky Fowler is on this Friday trying to make the tournament to play on Sunday, which is today. And on one hole, he had a, about a 20-foot putt. And he hit the putt, and it went around and curved around the cup. It just hit it and curled like that. And if you played golf, you've done that yourself. So now he was left with a 6-inch putt. And when he came up to make the 6-inch putt, he whiffed it and only knocked it 1 inch. And because of that, he missed the cut. And he's not playing today. He's on his way next to the next tournament. The lesson there is, get the important things right. Get the simple things right. And what Paul's message in 1 Corinthians is, to make sure you get the important, clearly identifiably important things exactly right. Or you might miss the cut. Now, if you don't know what I mean by that, hang with me. We'll get to that. But Paul here is now in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning to develop this long explanation of the resurrection. Now, if you've been with us over these past several months, you know that we've seen Paul deal with and explain a lot of issues to the Corinthians. This was a troublesome sort of congregation because of who they were and where they came from, and we'll see that. But he's had to deal with them over divisions in the church, over who's the more uh, engaging, charismatic leader. He's had to deal with issues of uh, interpersonal relations, of, of sex, of dealing with pagans in the cults and, and food issues, and on and on. And today he's now finally dealing with the last controversy he has to solve. And it is on the resurrection. And so Paul comes to uh, chapter 15 now, knowing that we have to get this right, that everything else doesn't matter if we get this wrong. And so he makes a big emphasis to get this right. And so remember the Corinthians, the city of Corinth was an ancient great Greek city that was, uh, had a long history, had built great temples to the Greek gods. When the Romans decided to conquer it, they destroyed and vacated all of Corinth. It was only some years later when the Romans needed a place to house its retired soldiers. And of course, it was dangerous to have a bunch of retired soldiers all crammed into Rome. So they established cities like Philippi and like Corinth. So Corinth was now resettled as a Roman city with retired Roman soldiers. And that might give you some idea as to why the, the people of that town were so rambunctious, let's say, in everything they did. So the church now that Paul is building in Corinth and now writing to and writing several times to is a church with people that come with a lot of strange and different views that he's now having to deal with. And of course, in the ancient world, everybody was pagan. And Paul is writing to a group of people that were pagan, that came out of paganism. Now, the word pagan is a word which simply means countryside. Those are people that live on the outskirts of town. They're not urban like us. They're pagans out there. 
And the word was applied to the religions of the ancient world by Christians some centuries later. So it's in hindsight now that they're called pagans. So we don't want to think of it as simply witchcraft, but as the religions of the ancient world where people worshipped the multitude of gods that they had created. It begins with the Greeks, of course, where you have the Greeks creating the gods, Zeus and, and uh, Hera. The Romans had created their own parallel, and we find it in India and other places as well. There's multiple gods, and so this is what the people are thinking. And as these gods come together in Rome, we see uh, a parallel between them. The Romans had a way of interpreting these foreign gods to make them their own. And part of what we have to answer this morning is what was their thinking about this idea of immortality. What happens to the soul after we die? Where does it go? And there's several answers that were given in the ancient world, and we'll find that those same answers in the ancient world are the same answers that are given today by people in our world. The answers haven't changed, just what we call them. And so the first answer might be given by a man, a philosopher named Epicurus. The Epicurean philosophy said that when you die, your soul is annihilated. Your body decays in the grave and it's gone. Your soul then goes to nowhere. There's nothing that remains. So there's the Epicurean philosophy, which brings an end to everything. After that, there's also Plato. Now, Plato became particularly influential because he created and spoke of a dualism. There's a physical nature we have, a body. There's also an immaterial soul that governs that body. And part of what we have to do is learn to have the spirit of the soul govern the body and, and, and tame its habits and addictions and desires. But for Plato and for many others that followed him, uh, like Pythagoras, we get the Pythagorean theorem. Pythagoras was not just a mathematician, but a religious philosopher who also spoke of the body as being that which imprisoned the soul. Upon death, the body would decay, but the soul itself would be free of the body and could go on its way up into the heavens somewhere. And so that's what Plato taught. That's what Pythagoras taught. This is what their thinking was. Aeschylus was another uh, uh, philosopher who talked about it and said that Zeus uh, had this uh, conversation with Apollo, and Apollo said that Zeus does have the ability to bring you back from the dead, but must do it immediately. Because once the blood drains into the, the dust, there is no retrieval from death. And so the Greek and Roman philosophy was that there is no retrieval from death, in other words, no resurrection. And the most profound story telling this is the, Greek, is the uh, story that's told by both the Greeks and the Romans, by Ovid, and, uh, that is of Orpheus and his beloved Eurydice. Orpheus was a great musician, and Orpheus loved to play, and he was good at the lyre, sort of a cross between a harp and a guitar. And he could play the lyre in such a way that people were just calmed by it, soothed by it, and dropped all of their anger and everything drained out of them. They loved listening to Orpheus play. Kind of like Eric Clapton, he could play it so well. And as he played, everything went well. But he finally met his beloved Eurydice, and they got married. And when he married Eurydice, they had their wedding ceremony. And just as it concluded, Eurydice with the bridesmaids wandered off to prepare for the next steps. And she was bitten by a snake and died. And so Eurydice was now dead and went down into the underworld. Orpheus, who was so overcome with grief, decided there's got to be a way of getting her back. And so Orpheus enters the underworld, goes down to find Eurydice, playing his lyre and calming even those in the underworld. And so even Sisyphus is calmed and no longer has to push his rock up the hill continually. 
Uh, he crosses the river Styx and finds who is down there? Hades. That's the lord of the underworld. So Hades is now entreated upon and said, will you give me my Eurydice back? And Hades, after hearing the liar, consents and says, you can have Eurydice back. You can take her back up into the land of the living, but only if, as you depart, you don't look back. And so Orpheus plays the liar. Eurydice follows him out from the underworld up into the gray area from the black, now into the light. And when Orpheus enters the light, he turns back to look to see if Eurydice's following. But she hadn't crossed that threshold yet. And so, as Hades said, she's pulled back down into the underworld. And she dies there. She falls back saying, farewell. There is no hope. You see, that's the Greek and Roman idea of what happens after death. The soul goes down into the underworld, into Hades, and there is no hope of coming back into this world. There is no resurrection. So that's what the Corinthian people believed. That's what they thought. That's what they knew to be the case. Now, that's also true in our world. We know in our world today, there are those we could call Epicurean, those who say that there is nothing that survives this life. When we die, that's it. When you're dead, you're dead. And there's nothing that survives, nothing that matters. The only thing that might survive is either your remaining 401k or some legacy you left behind, but nothing of you that matters ever survives. It's all gone and done. And so we live today with many who are Epicurean, and that is basically following the philosophy of the Enlightenment, that atheism that began to develop that said there is no God, there is no afterlife, there's nothing that remains, there's nothing that matters. So there's those. But most people still believe in some type of afterlife. Now, they're not Christian, but they believe in some sense that there's a soul that we have that goes somewhere. And so they follow more of the ideas of Plato, believing that there is another world in which our soul, our core being may go, where it will have some afterlife existence. And so even in the, uh, after the Enlightenment, or before the Enlightenment of the 1700s, there was within the church, and primarily we're talking about the Roman Catholic Church, this idea of, of the soul. Uh, and in fact, in March, my daughter and I were in Rome. In fact, I was the last person to leave the Sistine Chapel before it closed. I mean, I, nobody's been in the Sistine Chapel except the Pope since I left it in March. <laughs> but when you're in the Sistine Chapel, you look up at the great ceiling, and some of you have been there. Who's been there? Oh, many of you have. You've been there. I was there nearly alone, my daughter and I, for an hour with uh, about five uh, Japanese Christians. And when you stand in the Sistine Chapel and look high into those ceilings, you see up there the platonic idea of what heaven is. It's ethereal. It's up there. It's in the clouds. We see God in the clouds creating Adam. We see the stories of Moses and Jesus and Noah and all these stories being told, which gives us the conception that that's what heaven is that heaven is the place where our souls go when we die, and that's where we reside forever in heaven with God. That is bad Christian theology. That is pagan Platonic theology. What the Bible talks about is something different from that. It talks about a resurrection in which we ourselves, after we die, are resurrected to new life in this world, in a new created world that God has created for us. And when Paul writes to the Corinthians, He's warning them against these sort of philosophies, these sort of theologies, and he's telling us that this matters. And so let's again look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. And we see here 
Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, and the word Christ, of course, is a Greek word for Messiah in the Hebrew, if the Messiah Jesus is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, that's the question. How can you say that? But then Paul begins to develop this out. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Now, that raises this conundrum. If you continue to carry your pagan beliefs that there is no resurrection, that means even Christ is not raised. And if he's not raised, then we've got problems, and he's going to develop that. Now, I can tell you at this point that Paul develops a lot of history. He develops a lot of theology, but he does it also in a very artistic way. And that's what I can't show you this morning. If we had time, we could draw out the way this argument is laid out very poetically, very beautifully, very symmetrically. We can't see that this morning. Uh, we don't have time. But just to let you know that that's how this is kind of laid out. Now, of course, if we go back to, uh, as Paul Scrabeck was last week, into chapter 15, verse 1, just to lay out what the gospel is. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then the twelve. Now those three verses, verses 3, 4, and 5, are what we call a creed. They are a doctrinal statement that pre-existed Paul writing them. These words clearly sound like something that was floating around in the Christian community that reminded all believers about why we're here, about what we're doing, and why we're together. This creed, this definition of the gospel is something they would repeat to one another, remind each other about what this is. And so we see this creed being laid out, and the core point of it is the resurrection, that he died, was buried, and rose on the third day. But now Paul has to uh, defend this from the pagans in his own congregation. So again we see in verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised, how can some of you say there is no resurrection? In verse 14 he begins to develop the consequences of that. If you're correct and there is no resurrection, what follows? Verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, then... Our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Two things. First of all, Paul says, everything I've been saying all along, everything I've written has been a waste. It's empty. The word vain means empty. It's meaningless. There's no point to it, no content to it that matters. And your faith has been in vain. Your faith has been believing in something that's empty, something that's void. And, of course, we see now Paul raising the stakes on this. If everything we've done is vain, is empty, is meaningless, then why are we doing it? And so he continues, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. So he raises it even further and says, I've been misrepresenting God because I testified about God. Now, of course, you know, When you testify in court, you have to testify to what you know. A witness can testify only to what they know. If they testify to only what they've heard from somebody else, that's called hearsay. Now, Paul is letting us know that he was one of the witnesses, and that's what he says earlier in this chapter, 
that Cephas and the twelve and the five hundred and himself are witnesses of this resurrection. They saw the resurrected Christ. And so he's now saying that I'm not testifying to what I heard. If I were and I'm wrong, then I'm only wrong. I'm testifying to what I saw and what I know. And if it didn't happen, then I'm a liar. I'm a perjurer. And so Paul is raising the stakes because, of course, the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not lie. And that's exactly what Paul has been doing and the others if, in fact, they had not seen the resurrected Christ. And so they're making the point that this resurrection is an historical event that happened in space and time. The Christian faith is grounded on an understanding that our faith is based on a resurrection that happened in real life, in real space, in real time, in the past. And so he continues. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Now the words are not raised, you can follow that up with by God. If the dead are not raised by God. This is uh, in the passive voice, if you remember a little bit of your grammar from uh, school. There's an active voice in which a subject is doing the action. There's a passive voice in which the subject is acted upon. If the dead who are the subject of the sentence, they can't raise themselves, right? They need somebody to actively act upon them. So they're passive in this. And so Paul uses this passive voice, and it's called the divine passive. And you see this throughout the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Often they describe God in a passive sense, him working in this sense. He works upon us. It's God who saves us. It's, it's we who are saved, who are being saved. It's we who are being raised. So if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you're still in your sins. You're, have you ever done something that's futile? That's the idea of, of, of Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill repeatedly. It's a futile effort because you're working and working, accomplishing nothing. It's going nowhere. There's no point to it. And I think we've all engaged in activities in life. At some point, we realize that it's now futile. There's no more point to this. In Little League sports, they have, a, I think, a 10-run rule. That when you're losing by 10 runs, they just kindly call the game because it's futile to think that they're going to come back from that. Let's just quit right now and stop the embarrassment. Well, if there is no resurrection, then everything we've been doing is futile. In fact, it would be a, his, a historic waste of your time if you spent all these years gathering as believers if there is no resurrection. Your faith is futile. And then he says, and you're still in your sins. Now that gets to the core of it, because if you're still in your sins then there is no answer. We don't have an answer. We're left where we were, still without an answer for our sins, if there's no resurrection. Verse 18, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So this is the sixth consequence. Those who have fallen asleep. Now the words fallen asleep we recognize as a euphemism, a nice, kind way of speaking of death. And that was not uncommon in the ancient world to speak of people like that. We talk about people who have passed away or gone on to the better world or something like that. Uh, but when Paul uses this, he does speak of those who have died outside of Christ. And he speaks of those who have fallen asleep or in Christ. Because Paul's communicating to us the idea that when a believer dies, they're not dead dead. Because there's a promise of a future resurrection coming. And so they're not completely dead, as the unbeliever is, but they're still there with the hope and the promise that there's a resurrection. 
And so they've only fallen asleep one day to be awakened again. One day when God calls, they'll be awakened again with a resurrected body. And so he speaks of it in that language. They've fallen asleep. But if there is no resurrection, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And that, of course, leads us back to the Greco-Roman philosophy, theologies of their pagan religions, which is there's an underworld in which your soul goes with no hope of return, no hope of a future, and that's where you remain. There's nothing to look forward to, no hope. We're left as those who perish. And in the Greek and Roman mind, they try to conceive of what this would be like, as though you're in some sort of a, a dull, dense sort of world where you're only semi-conscious, not fully conscious, but conscious enough to know that you're somewhere, but there's nothing you can do about it. So they have a very bleak picture of what life would be in the afterlife, because that's all there is. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ is only good for you in this life, In other words, if what we're doing on Sundays is only giving you better advice on how to live in this life, how to overcome anxiety, how to overcome fear, how to strive and and, and break the barriers that keep you from rising above the others, if that's all it is, is a hope for this life only, then he says you're to be pitied. You've wasted your life. Go do something else. There's more than the Christian philosophy to teach you how to overcome anxiety. There's other ways of doing that, Paul is pointing out. And so there is this life. We recognize how short life is. I mean, think about your life. Life is brief, right? James says, life is brief. For what is your life? It's but a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. I can think back to my Teens, I'm 15 years old. The the time between 15 and 35, those 20 years, 15 and 35, were a long 20 years. But the 20 years between 35 and 55 are a whole lot shorter. Right? And read between 55 and 75, they're even shorter, aren't they? I mean, life goes by quickly, and before you know it, it's done. And there's nothing left. And what's the point? Paul is pointing out to the Corinthians, there is a point. There is a reason. There is a hope. There's something more. So let's stay on that. But in this life, this is all Christ is for, then we're wasting it. And so what Paul tells us in these first verses through uh, verse 19, if there is no resurrection, then we have a hopeless end. That's all there is. But then he turns the tables in verse 20. If there is a resurrection, then we have an endless hope. In verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So he speaks here now of the resurrection. There is this resurrection. And he calls Christ the first fruits. Now, the first fruits we might remember in Exodus 23 and Leviticus 23, God gave a, a festival for the Jews to follow, which was a festival of the first fruits. And God said to the Jews that when the harvest comes in, you take the first sheaf of the grain the first uh, newborn cattle, and you dedicate those to the Lord. And they do that first out of gratitude, knowing that the harvest is coming from God himself, so it's one of gratitude to God for what he's done for them. And it's always a recognition that God has been there for us. 
Secondly, it's in recognition of the fact that there's a promise of a, the following harvest. It's only the first fruits because something more is coming after it. And so we can look forward to what's coming after. The first parts are given to the Lord in promise of the fact that there's a whole lot more coming. And so the first fruits conveys this idea. But even a third idea is, is that the first fruits is something of a new and different kind. Something else is happening here. And when Paul tells us that Christ is the first fruits, he's saying that Christ is only the first, the beginning. And that after him, there's a whole lot more coming like that. So the point he's making here is this first fruits is, is, is significant. Now, we know that Christ was crucified on Passover, right? On Passover, on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, he was crucified. Two days later, as Leviticus 23 tells us, the Jews on the 16th day of Nisan are to celebrate the first fruits. And so just as Christ was crucified on the Passover, two days later, his resurrection is a picture of the first fruits. And so the day that Christ was resurrected, the Jews were celebrating the first fruits. And so we see this being laid out. God's got this figured out for us. Verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And you know who the man is, and if you're not sure, Paul tells us in verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Now, we see here him speaking of a man by whom death came, and a man by whom the resurrection came. Paul's point here is not to spend time on the Adam side of it, he does that in Romans chapter 5, verse 12 to 21. He explains this whole corporate identity we have. We are all in Adam, in humanity. We are all those who suffer the consequences of his fall, of his sin. And so we are by nature in Adam and suffer the consequences of the fall because of his sin and ours. But those who are in Christ by faith, not by nature, but by faith, are in him and enjoy the fruits of his resurrection. That is then our promise. And so we have this promise from God. And so he says that for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. When he speaks here of the resurrection, by Christ has come the resurrection, the Greek word used here is anastasis. We get the, the girl's name Anastasia, which means resurrection. And the two parts of the word ana means up, and stasis means to stand. So the, the words anastasis means to stand up. And it's a picture of this resurrection. Now when we were studying back in John in chapter 11, you remember there that moment when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And we made there the point that that was not a resurrection. When Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead, that was a resuscitation. He brought him back into this life where we're at now. So it's a dead man that came back this way into this life. That's a resuscitation. A resurrection is a person who's now dead and is now living in that time between death and the future resurrection. So we have a person who's alive, then a person who dies. To resuscitate is to bring him back into this life. A resurrection is to take them from that moment of living after death into their new life after that. And so whatever happens after we die, wherever our soul goes, wherever our being is during that time, 
The Bible doesn't speak a lot about that or make it abundantly clear. Christ on the cross, we hear about the, uh, the, 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 the brigand with him being with him in paradise. After that, there's a resurrection into new life. And Christ died and then was resurrected into that new life, that new body. And so probably the most significant book in 100 years written on this was written by uh, N.T. Wright called The Resurrection. And he uses a turn of phrase that many find helpful. It is the resurrection is our life after life after death. We have a life after death, that interim time after we're dead, but we're still somewhere immortal there. But our resurrection is our life after that life after death. It is our existence in what God has promised after that. And so that's a resurrection that Jesus enjoyed. And it's a promise that God gives to us as well. In verse 23, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Their own order is a military term uh, of rank and file. There's an order. So there's a general that leads and precedes. Then there's a rank and file of all those who follow after him. So when Paul is writing to the Corinthians, most of these are retired military. They know this word. It's the only time it's ever used in the New Testament. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits first. Then it is coming, his parousia, those who belong to Christ. And so we get this promise that there's a time coming when Christ returns and those of us who are believers are ourselves resurrected, given our new body as well. That is our promise. That's what we mean by heaven. We talk about a decedent who's gone to heaven. We're talking about somebody who one day will be resurrected and will enjoy a new life in a resurrected body. But then now Paul gets into... Some of what happens, this is a brief sort of eschatological discussion, the future. He says in verse 24, Then comes the end when he, Christ, delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And so here we have Christ creating a kingdom and eventually delivering it to the Father. And when he speaks of destroying every rule and authority and power, he's using words that the Corinthians knew. Those are words that spoke of the emperor. And by the time Paul is writing, the Roman world has gone from the republic that was basically ended by Julius Caesar into the time of the emperors. And, uh, and this is kind of important because in the, the uh, Corinthian way of thinking, they knew who the emperor was. He was the rule. He was the authority. He was the power. And when Paul is writing this, saying that Christ will break all those who rule, all authority and power, it's a, it's a very subversive argument. It's a very subversive document. It's the sort of thing that would get you crucified yourself. And Paul is saying that's exactly what's going to happen. So Julius Caesar, you know, brought his armies from Gaul. Civil war ensued with Pompey and eventually conquered Rome and became something of a, a, an emperor. He couldn't, didn't want to call himself that, but eventually he did. He acted like he was king, and for that he got stabbed on the Ides of March in the year 44 B.C. by Brutus. So Julius Caesar dies. Brutus thought he was doing a good thing by trying to bring that back the Republic. When Julius Caesar's dead now, the people of Rome, kind of, we kind of like that guy. And so Brutus and his co-conspirators would eventually run out of town. And the Roman people began to celebrate Julius Caesar. And in the forum in Rome, the ancient area, there is a temple to Julius Caesar there. And even to this day, people lay flowers at the foot of this temple to Julius Caesar because of the power that he had even 2,000 years later. But two years after his death, they were holding games in his honor. 
And while they're holding these games, a comet, like we see in the skies now, a comet comes through the sky. For seven days they saw the comet, and the Romans knew that was Julius Caesar now with the gods. And that was all the argument they need to know that Julius Caesar was himself a god. And so now we know Augustus, who followed uh, uh, Julius Caesar. Jesus was born under the reign of uh, uh, Caesar Augustus. But Augustus then began to promote the cult of the emperor becoming a god. And eventually Augustus himself said, when I die, I will become a god. And when he did, the one who followed him, Tiberius, said, Augustus is a god. And so in the Roman world, the emperors became gods. And after uh, Tiberius, Caligula, and Claudius, and on, each of them recognizing the one prior to becoming a god. Now when we get to Caligula, he said, I won't become a god when I die. I'm a god now. And so he began proclaiming his own divinity in this life. Now we think that's something strange from 2,000 years ago, but even during World War II, uh, Hitler was on his way to becoming divinized by his cultic group, and the emperor here, Hitler of Japan, was proclaimed a god by the Japanese. So in this life, we still see that. But when Caesar and Augustus and Tiberius and, and now Caligula, under whom Paul is writing, and eventually Nero, these are becoming gods. When Paul says that they will all be brought to nothing, he is saying that there is nothing to those, those uh, imperial cults. They are nothing, but they will all be defeated. And in verse 25, For he, Christ, must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Paul personifies death here as the end, as that which is defeated by God. God will bring an end to death in the end. And he does that by the resurrection. Verse 27, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. The idea of being put under the feet is a very common Middle Eastern, ancient world sort of concept. The Pharaoh had a box. King Tut, there's a, his tomb was discovered. And his feet were on a box with the names of all the conquered uh, peoples. His, they were under his feet. That's a symbol of the power and authority that the emperor had over others. And here we see that Christ as king will become the one and everything else will be under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection... It is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now, that's kind of confusing, but it's quite simple. Paul is saying that all things we put under Christ, except God the Father, who's not put in subjection under Christ, but Christ himself becomes subject to the Father, not inferior, but subject to the Father in the final kingdom where God rules, the kingdom of God rules, Christ as, his, as the, the, the region, as God himself, and then all those who are believers. That's the final end of the kingdom that God is talking about here. And so it ends with that, with God being all in all, the unchallenged reign of God in the universe and his sovereignty is uncontested now. And so we see that's a promise. And if there is a resurrection, then we as believers have an endless hope. There's no end to the hope we have. Continuing in verse 29, otherwise, and here's a hard verse, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And so now we have this question about what does it mean, Paul, talking about being baptized on behalf of the dead? Now, in reading the commentaries, and one commentator enumerates that there's over 40 views of this. 
And so flip your notes over to the back. Let's go through those real quickly in the time we have remaining. Let's do it the short way. We don't have time. When you read something like that, ask yourself, is this something that the author, in this case Paul, is mentioning, or is it something he's teaching? Now, it could be either here. He's either mentioning this as something that happens, or he's teaching it as something that should happen. There are many good believers, our friends, who believe that Paul is teaching this. And he's not saying that you are baptized vicariously on behalf of somebody else to get their sins forgiven. There's other ways of thinking about it. And one uh, suggested solution is that when a beloved one dies, your mother passes away and on her deathbed she looks up to you and says, please, believe in the gospel so that you'll join me in heaven. Then you are being baptized, in other words, becoming a believer on behalf of the dead. The dead mother that preceded you has invited you to become a Christian and you do that on her behalf. That's one view. Uh, Another view might be that... um, Uh, Your own physical nature is what is dead. And when you're baptized on behalf of the dead, he's talking about becoming a believer and your dead body itself being baptized, becoming a believer. But perhaps Paul is simply just mentioning this as a practice that happens that isn't being taught. And so there may be those pagans in Corinth who are bringing into the congregation with their baptism saying that we can be baptized on behalf of the dead people. And, and we're doing that. And Paul is simply making an argument, defending the resurrection and saying that if you're being baptized on behalf of dead people, which isn't being taught and doesn't mean anything, but you're also saying that there is no resurrection, then why are you doing that? That exercise in itself is futile. You're being baptized on behalf of somebody where there's no hope anyway. Paul entirely here is defending the idea of the resurrection. And I think only mentioning this bad practice by some of the pagans in the church. Now he continues on. Verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? And he's explaining, you know, this defense of the resurrection saying, I've given my life, I'm in danger constantly by it. Why are we in danger every hour? In 2 Corinthians 11, you can see there Paul enumerating the times he's been shipwrecked and beaten and chastised and chased out. I protest, brothers, my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. I'm coming to the point of being killed every day because of what I'm doing. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. He's going through a list of things here saying that, you know, if there's no resurrection, then why am I doing all this? Why am I suffering so? Why am I enduring such hardship? And if there is no resurrection, then maybe... The Epicureans are right. Let's just eat, drink, and be merry, and let life go that way. No. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about that, but you get the point. Verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor. Now, this idea of, of, like, talking to a drunk. Wake up, he's slapping you in the face from your drunken stupor. Pay attention to what you're saying, what you're doing, what you're thinking, and believing, and teaching. And how you're living, wake up from that and see there's consequences to it. If you don't change your way, some of you, consequences follow. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. The point he's making here is the resurrection matters. That one day, believers will stand up again, Anastasis be resurrected, 
into a new life, into a new world that God has prepared for us. Revelation 21 talks about that new heavens and new earth into which we've been promised and called as believers. And so we have a promise of that. We're looking forward to that. There was some years ago, the actor Christopher Reeves, who you remember, played Superman until he found out he was not that super when he broke his neck and became paralyzed. And uh, during a Super Bowl some years ago, they put Christopher Reeves in a commercial and said that one day, I get through life every day believing that one day I will stand again, that, there is, that medicine will one day heal those who are paralyzed, and I'll stand again and walk again. And Christopher Reeves was in that thin hope that one day science and medicine will find a way to give him legs again. The next day, Charles Krauthammer, that some of you might remember, himself a medical doctor and himself paralyzed, wrote a column saying that Christopher Reeves is giving you a false hope. Now, Christopher Reeves was being optimistic, but not realistic. Krauthammer was being pessimistic, but realistic. And so Krauthammer said, there's no evidence in the near time anywhere that there's, medicine's going to give you hope. And if you're living this life today only with hope that science is going to get you to walk again, you're going to be disappointed. And some people saying, I can't go on as a paraplegic, might as well commit suicide and end it all. Krauthammer said, no, even as a paraplegic, you can live a vigorous life, you can do things, you can enjoy life. So even after he became a paraplegic, he became a medical doctor himself, all of that as a paraplegic and lived a great life. Life. So we have this conflict between Reeves and Krauthammer. The problem is, Krauthammer is too pessimistic because we as believers know there is a future resurrection in which all shall stand again who are in Christ. And, and Christopher Reeves is unrealistic. But if there is a resurrection, as Paul testifies to, then there is a realistic, guaranteed hope in that into which we can be optimistic. And so one day it is true that those who are believers who are paralyzed will themselves stand up again. The bodies that we have that are so broken down and beaten down will one day be renewed with the new life that God gives us and is being renewed now. Even in this world that God has us in, we are in this world as his creatures bringing his kingdom now. But when he returns, the new bodies that were promised will give us that life that we so long for and look forward to. That's a promise that Paul's getting at here. More about that next week as we see what the resurrected body is like, how it operates. But for us today, think about what Paul has done, simply reminding us that without Christ there is no hope, but with Christ there is an endless hope. That's what we have. Let's pray. Our Father, as we... Reflect on your word. We thank you for this message you've given to us that we know there is a resurrection, that we know we have a future hope. And so, Lord, may we live each day in this life in light of that promise, in light of that recognition, knowing that there is more than this life only. There is so much more. So let us live and think and operate, believe and teach and love as though there is, for it's in Christ's name we pray.